I'd like to begin by drawing your attention to the text in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And um, some of you may remember in the very beginning, the point church, Ephesians 4 was a key context of scripture, which we focused upon when we were revisiting the whole process of in, in a new church planting. What is it that we need to be focused upon? Which is the same as saying, what is it that God wants of us as a church? What exactly is it to be a church according to God's dreams, you might recognise that language. And Ephesians 4 was very much a, a focal point for us in, in addressing that, that question. So I'd like to just for a moment focus our attentions there. And Paul, the apostle, speaking to the churches, speaks of the gifts that Christ gave to his church. And he describes those gifts He's not saying that certain people received certain gifts to be in this role, in this function. He's saying these people serving this way are the gifts that Christ has provided for his church. So the gifts that Christ has given to his church is the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. And you'll notice their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Um, A little bit earlier in the letter, the same letter, Paul wrote to the church there, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Notice there the phrase, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. When we come to the question of when Paul then goes on to talk about the gifts given to the church and he mentions the apostles and the prophets, I want to suggest to you, and you'll recognise this phrase from the Gospels, the law and the prophets or the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And, and that language became code for what we would call the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And I want to suggest to you that as we transition into the New Testament era, if you will, that similarly the phrase the apostles and the prophets is code for the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, which is the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, plus the New Testament scriptures, which is fundamentally a record of the teaching and practices of the apostles as they were revealed to the apostles through the spirit of Christ as Christ had promised them and they passed that on to the church. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we find again the same apostle Paul, this time writing to Timothy and notice his language. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith and my patience and my love and my endurance. 
But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realise what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, we could spend a lot of time further establishing this point. I don't think we need persuading or convincing of this fundamental truth. The gifts that Christ gave to the church in the form of the apostles and the prophets, and I guess I'm not sure, frankly, a prophet there, is he talking about the New Testament prophets? Is he talking about the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament scriptures? Probably both, if push came to shove. But I'm pretty confident in this. The gifts that Christ gave in the first century in the form of the apostles and the prophets, accompanied by, supported by the Old Testament scriptures, today we have no less those same gifts from Christ as his church in the form of the scriptures. This is God's modus operandi from going way, way back to the old covenant people of God that he would provide all that we need. How does Paul put it? God uses the scriptures to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Everything we need as the people of God, God has provided for us in the Christian scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures. Now, these are the gifts again that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the scriptures in form today. The evangelists and the pastors and teachers, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. So the evangelists, pastors and teachers serve to equip God's people. The evangelists literally means the gospeler. Um, as best as I can make out, when we in scripture we're told that, for example, uh, Timothy was commanded to do the work of an evangelist, the work of a gospeler. And our our immediate impulse is to see the word gospel as, oh, well, that's for the non-Christians, and that's true. I, I don't doubt that that's true. But when we look at the actual work of Timothy, it was much bigger than just preaching the gospel to unbelievers. He was charged with the nurture of the church at Ephesus. So I want to suggest this to you. The work of an evangelist, very similar to what we typically think of as a a minister in the church today. The work of an evangelist as a gospeler is to be proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers but also interpreting the gospel for the lives of believers. This is God's saving message to those who need to hear that message. This is what that saving message means in our lives for the disciples of Christ. The evangelists, 
the pastors and teachers. And it's debatable whether, whether that's talking about separate roles, the pastors on the one hand and the teachers on, on the other. And we all know pastor is, biblically speaking, pastor is, is an elder, is a bishop. It's all synonyms for the same role, different facets of the same diamond, if you will. Whether, whether it's pastors who are teachers, who, they, they do both, pastoring and teaching, or whether it's pastors on the one hand and teachers, that's debatable. That's debatable. For, for our purposes, it's not that important, but to recognise in our midst, we have evangelists, we have pastors, elders, teachers. This is the important part. What's their role? What's their job? What's their responsibility? To equip God's people to do God's work, to build up the church. This is really simple stuff. The ministers are not the evangelists and pastors, you'll notice. The ministers are not the pastors and evangelists. They equip the ministers and facilitate their work. In other words, every member of the body is a minister. Every member of the body is engaged in ministry, is a servant. This will continue, says Paul, until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. The name of the game is Christ-likeness. That is simply and profoundly the end game for us. To be growing in Christ likeness. And you'll notice that Paul says this arrangement, the gifts that Christ has given to the church, the teaching of the apostles and prophets through the medium today of the Holy Scriptures, we've all got that. The equipping of the evangelists, pastors and teachers, we've all got that. And Paul says that arrangement is intended to last until such a time, until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. And guess what? That's a process that never ends. Not just in our lifetimes, but historically from the first century to the present that challenge, that goal has been present for the church and it will continue as long as the Lord delays his return. That's God's arrangement. That's God's expectation of us for his church. Verse 16, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Each part contributing, as we've noted, each part 
Each member is a minister engaged in service. Service through, according to Paul, exercising one's uniqueness, one's unique gifts. Notice the language again for the same author, Paul, in Romans chapter 12. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, he's speaking of the church, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one, to one body and we all belong to each other. And of course, in the, church, in the letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Paul goes to great lengths to emphasise this point. The Spirit gives each one of us gifts. Gifts that we are given as stewards to render into the service of Christ and the service of the body of Christ, the building up of the church. Everybody actively involved. Now that looks different for every person. Uniqueness seems to be the point of emphasis. We would be wrong to place expectations upon one another as you ought to be doing this or you ought to be doing that. But I am confident in saying this, you ought to be doing something, whatever that something is that is uniquely your gift, your responsibility as a matter of your stewardship, as a member of the body. Service to help each member, you'll notice. It's never self-centred. It's never focused upon self. It's always service rendered for the upbuilding, encouragement of others. Service to promote the health and growth of the body. Service motivated, you'll notice, by love, which of course is agape, Willing and doing what is in the best interests of the other. Willing and doing what is in the best interests of the other. That is what is unique, peculiar about the people of God as an association of people, as a church. Whatever else characterises the church It's only the church in so much as it's operating on the basis of love. It's reflecting the glory and character of God. Christ-likeness, remember? Christ-likeness. To promote the health and the growth of the body. I want to focus upon and reduce to very simple terms what it is to be a church. And I'm referring to what many of us would call the Great Commission. You'll remember that Jesus, after his resurrection, Luke says, presented himself with many infallible proofs to the disciples. And then after some 40 days, he prepares his disciples, the apostles, for his leaving them. He'd already given them a heads up, but now the time has come when he will be returning to the Father from whom he came. He's about to ascend to the heavenlies to take his rightful place at the right-hand side of the Father to begin his rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. And at this point, he pulls together the apostles, his special messengers, specially selected, specially trained, specially equipped with the Spirit of God 
are now commissioned to go forward and to establish Christ's church. Jesus came and told the disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all commands I have given you and be sure of this. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Let me summarise it this way. Make followers of Christ who will mature in Christ's likeness, obeying the commands Christ gave the apostles. Who will then make other followers of Christ who will mature in Christ's likeness, obeying the commands Christ gave the apostles. Who will then make other followers of Christ. And you get the sense it's a cycle. It's a cycle that Christ intended to be established through his apostles and to continue until his return. So, summarily, it really is as simple as this. As a church of God, what's our mission? What's the rationale for our existence as a people? Two things. Make disciples, grow disciples. Make disciples, grow disciples. It really is, really is as simple as that. Family of God, what does that mean? Covenant people, what does that mean? If we've got a clear, simple picture of what our purpose is as a church, there's one question we need to entertain and grapple with. What exactly is a church? I mean, what, what, what relationally, what are we talking about? Scripture uses many metaphors to describe the church. I'm focusing here on two. The family of God the covenant people of God. And this might seem strange to you at first, but I want to introduce you to an observation that a person named Maggie Gallagher made. And this was made in the context of discussions around same-sex marriage of all things. And the way that marriage and friendship and love were all becoming redefined to accommodate the whole um, movement towards justifying same-sex marriage, etc., etc., She focuses here on the concept of friendship. And I think her contrast is very interesting, very challenging, because I suspect that we today in the modern West are far more affected by the self-centred narcissism and consumerism of our Western society than we can begin to imagine. Listen to Maggie's observations about the shift in friendship. She describes two kinds of relationships that we call friendship. The first might be described as, and listen to this language carefully, you are mine because I love you. And that sounds nice. You are mine because I love you. You and I belong to a special friendship. And here's where it gets a bit grating as the honesty is brought forward into the light. You and I belong to a special friendship. 
conditioned upon my continuing to enjoy you and you continuing to enjoy me. If either of us tires of the other, for example, if you no longer meet my expectations, either of us are free to walk away. Thus we dance on the precipice of uncertainty and loss. Not very conducive to trust and vulnerability and sacrifice. If that's my understanding of a relationship, why would I sacrifice for such a relationship when it might not be here tomorrow? You might leave me or I might choose to leave you. Socially, we've experienced this recently. We've seen it back in, I believe it was 1975. A watershed, socially, a watershed moment for Australia, reflecting of what was happening in the West more broadly. We introduced no-fault divorce. You see, up until that point in time, you had to have a good reason. You had to justify that reason in order to get a divorce. But the introduction of no-fault divorce means exactly what it says. You don't have to justify it anymore. You know what? You've grown tired of them. Give them the flick and move on. That reduction of the value of friendship and love sowed the seeds for what we now know as things like same-sex marriage, etc., that watering down of friendship, commitment, and when you're talking about things like marriage, covenant to being a matter of mere convenience and I'll have what I want or I'll disregard what I don't want. How could you trust? How could you make yourself vulnerable and make sacrifices in such a relationship. And I want to tell you whether, you, whether we're conscious of it or not, we don't. <laughs> we don't. We don't. We look instead through the lens of, is this satisfying me? Is this meeting my expectations? And then when the answer comes back, no, I might gripe for a while and eventually I'll leave looking for the proverbial greener pastures looking for someone that puts on a better show, more entertainment, more meaningful, more relevant. There's a term that we throw around a lot today. More in tune with my tastes, my wants, my ideals. Relationships reduced to a quid pro quo. And in some contexts that's fine. I guess in business, quid pro quo allows things to, 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 to work all right. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. There's a place in human society for that. But that's not the church. That is not the church. Individualism, it's all about me. Consumerism, it's all about me. Membership in a club. I'm here because I, I, I have an interest, a shared interest with these people. It might be sports, it might be, I don't know, it might be drinking beer. But the relationship rests upon that shared interest and if my interests change or if I find a club that offers a a, a higher standard of whatever the thing is, then I'll shift my allegiance. And that's okay if we're just talking about a club. 
But again, that's not the church. And here, like it or not, it's about love, sure, but it's a very conditional love, which again is diametrically opposed to Christianity. The second might be described as the inverse. I love you because you are mine. It's not you're mine because I love you. It's I love you because you are mine. In this latter type of friendship, my feeling towards you is not the basis of our connection. Rather, we are bound to each other and therefore I love you. You may still bore me or hurt me or otherwise become unattractive to me, but that doesn't mean I will walk away. Does that shock you? Well, if it does, I think I've hit a nail on the head. Because this is Christianity. This is living in a covenant relationship with God and and one another. Sorry, I haven't finished that, that statement. It doesn't mean I will walk away. You're not mine because I love you. I love you because you are already and always mine, whether that be by promise or by clan or mob. Thinking of family, you don't get to choose the family you're born into. You don't. I mean, we often speak of friendship. You know, friends are the family you get to choose. And there's an element of truth in that. And I mean, the, the, the reality is, even Jesus within the circle of the apostles, he clearly had his favourites, the inner circle, James and John and Peter, that he spent time with that he didn't spend time with the others. He gave them special privileges that, that, he, that the others didn't share. And I want to suggest to you on the basis of Jesus' own example, that's normal behaviour, acceptable behaviour, inevitable behaviour. We like some people more than other people. But when it comes to family, how many of you have black sheep in the family? How many of you have people you'd really rather not own? (laughs) I could think, and this might be peculiar to my family, I could think of about half a dozen right off the top of my head. Uncle Russell, Uncle Russell, bless his heart. Western suburbs of Sydney, Currajong, Windsor, that sort of region. Uncle Russell had, I guess what you'd call an emotional breakdown with the death of his wife. The family had suffered a lot of loss, a lot of trauma. Uh, Their their oldest son had brain damage because he was caught in a a bushfire. They they knew what it was to suffer tragedy. But but the death of Russell's wife pushed him over an edge. And it expressed this way. To remain close to his beloved, he would wear her dressing gown. And it was a very girly dressing gown. And Russell would get around in nothing but the dressing gown. And that might be okay at home. But Uncle Russell, bless his heart, delighted in going into town 
And after a while, the locals, including the police, kind of, they knew he was harmless and tended to sort of cut him a lot of slack and, and, and turn the other eye, as it were. But Uncle Russell, his greatest delight was to go into the local branch of the Commonwealth Bank. And my father was pretty senior in the Commonwealth Bank, well known in the Commonwealth Bank. And Russell delighted in letting everybody in the Commonwealth Bank know that his nephew was a big shot in the Commonwealth Bank as he stands there declaring wearing ladies' clothing. And not too cautious sometimes about being sure that it's sort of, you know, tied up properly, modestly. And so we don't talk about Uncle Russell a great deal, except in sermons, but it suits my purposes. Everybody has black sheep. But you know what? It's okay for me to talk about Uncle Russell because Uncle Russell and I are and always will be bonded because we're family. And nobody would be quicker, in spite of Uncle Russell's embarrassing behaviour, nobody would be quicker than me to jump to his defence. Because my relationship with Uncle Russell is not based upon how I feel about him, whether I approve of his behaviour or whatever. It's based upon the bond that we have as family. Family. That's why God uses the metaphor family to describe his church. You don't get to choose the family that you're born into. Like it or not, like it or not, it's God that brings us together. Relationship is covenant people. Our loyalty to Christ is our, so our bond is our mutual commitment to him and his way. That's what holds us together. Not whether I like you, whether I think you're a nice person or not, or whether you like me for that matter. It's about our mutual commitment to Christ. Unconditional love, agape again. By this the world will know you are my disciples. Making disciples, growing disciples, all motivated by love, but not the self-centred love of the world, the other-centred love of Christ. As we live that out as community, as family and covenant people, sometimes, frankly, in spite of one another, But that's okay, that's family. 